Happy holidays, listeners, whatever you're celebrating out there. 2022, I would say it was so good on so many levels, but it has been challenging for me. And I've said that I'm going to try and organize my time better and create more relaxation and fun time and family time. And I certainly do all those things, but I want to really floor it in 2023 and take time for myself and for my family. I want to really nurture all of the good that I have. And I really want to take time for all of everything that comes with my life instead of feeling like maybe I'm scrambling around But I also have very exciting things that are going to keep me very busy if things go to plan in the new year. So it's a balancing act. I'm excited, but I'm I'm really trying to stay focused on that element. If that speaks to you, I hope that you're able to, to do that for yourself in the new year. And happy new year to all of you. We're going to be taking a short break in January, but we've lined up some of my favorite episodes to revisit from season one. Don't Ask Tig will be back with all new episodes starting February 1st. Also, I wanted to let people know that I've put some merchandise up on my website, tignotaro.com. You can get my albums, whether they're on my website and hard copies, physical copies. You can also download them online, I think on Apple and different places like that. But yeah, I have my book, t-shirts, CDs, vinyl, all that kind of stuff. They make really great gifts. And yeah, also check out my other podcast, Tig and Cheryl True Story. It's a silly comedy podcast about documentaries each week. Okay, now on to the show. Teenage parenting is just, you're just a school bus driver. You're just driving them everywhere that they want to go. You're just giving them whatever they are asking for. Well, not ever, anything they ask for, <laughs> <Right>. but... <laughs> I was thinking maybe you're not good for this show. <laughs> yeah. With <advice>. <laughs> <laughs> Anything a child wants or asks for, especially just a give teenager, it you just give it to them. <laughs> we are not alone and nobody is hopeless. Everybody goes to shit. We got a friend in tears. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is Don't Ask. Tig. I'm Tig Notaro, an amateur advice giver and gold medal winning podcaster. My guest today (laughs) is a two-time Olympic gold medalist, FIFA World Cup champion, Mm. and six-time U.S. Soccer Athlete of the Year. She wrote the New York Times bestseller Wolfpack, hosts the ESPN Plus show Abby's Place, and also co-hosts the podcast We Can Do Hard Things with Glennon Doyle. She is a founder and part owner of Angel City FC, the first majority female-owned soccer team in history. Abby Wambach, welcome to Don't Ask Tig. 
Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, you know, and we had you and your beautiful wife, Stephanie, on mm-hmm. the We Can Do Hard Things podcast. So this just feels right. Full circle moment. It feels really good. And I have to tell you what you are known as at our house. Ooh, I love this. You ready? Yeah. I'll be right back. I'll be right back. I'll be right back. What does that mean? It sounds like your name. Abby Uh, Wambach. (laughs) Abby Wambach. Abby Wambach. I'll be right back. I'll be right back. I'll be right back. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. I just wanted to let you know that when you do come up at our house, that is the name that you have been given. You know what? I think that I'm going to try to steal it and bring Mm -hmm. it in my house. And I'm just going to actually use it as a way that I speak to my Mm -hmm. people. They're Mm -hmm. going to talk to me and I'll say, I'll be right back. I'll be right back. I'm Abby Wambach. (laughs) I'll be right back. (laughs) Now, Abby, I was thinking about you and I, and I thought, oh, I have that in common with Abby. And then I thought, well, then I have this other thing in common. It became this game in my head where I thought, let me think of all the things I have in common with you. And <laughs> let me tell fun. you what I've come up with. Yes, tell me. Okay, we're both gay. I'm assuming yes. you're still in that world. Totally, totally all, Full all time. in. Full-time all gay. Full-time okay. gay, for sure. We're both soccer pros. Are you? Well, when I was a child, yes. I was a goalie and center forward. Nice. Is this where you won the gold medal that you prefaced the podcast with? (laughs) Well, that was for the podcast. That's for the podcast. Got it. Got it. (laughs) We're both married. And we both married women that have never been with women. Yes. We both are parents. Mm -hmm. We both get misgendered. Yep. You love zombies. Yeah, I do. I was in a zombie movie. (gasps) Oh! Oh my gosh, which one? Army of the Dead. Okay, I haven't seen that one yet. It's on my to-do list. Okay, and then we both live in California. We both love the Indigo Girls. Yes, Um, and yes. You're sober. I'm not sober, but I don't drink a lot. I heard something the other day. Somebody said, I'm sober curious. And I was like, huh, (laughs) that's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) What is sober curious? Somebody who's thinking about getting sober somebody who, okay. who's probably not an addict but sees sober people and they're like it seems like they're doing really well over there yeah some of us at least i don't drink enough to be sober curious gosh i wish that i could have done that yeah i was just all in on the booze give it to me is it something you're just done and happily done with yeah i had the unique experience some of us do but not many do it in a public way i got a dui uh, mm-hmm. right after i retired from playing and my little horrific mugshot on the ticker of ESPN for a solid seven days and, you know, people <laughs> camp outside of my house at the time, you know, news channels and cameras, that does it to someone. It's like, yeah. oh, yeah, this is not ever something I want to participate in again. And so the lights kind of shut off for me. And it's just been it's almost seven years, seven years in April. So I'm six years sober now. Wow. Well, congrats. Yeah. Thank you. Now. I assume you watched the World Cup. Oh, yeah. I'm so excited. Not many people know this little fun fact that the women's national team signed a new CBA agreement with U.S. soccer. And the men also agreed to this, that the prize money for all of the World Cups will be equally shared among the men and women's teams. So the men essentially earned $13 million of prize money on November 29th. 
to be equally shared with the women's team. So our women's team just basically made $6.5 million. Wow. I know. That's it's, incredible. I, I know. I'm just like, I'm Are so- Are you going to match that? I'm not going to match it. And I maybe in jealousy. I have so much jealousy for the women's team for now getting all of the paydays that so many of us knew we had earned all along. That is incredible. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. But I know that that's a big part of yeah. your thing, right? Is Yeah, I've definitely dedicated so much of my life and mission Mm-hmm. to fighting for equality and equal pay falls into that category. And it's been such a joy to watch the women's team actually come through and sign this new collective bargaining agreement with U.S. Soccer that that they now have equal pay. Wow. Yeah, it's lovely. I just missed it, though, by a second. I was like, God it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't get the feeling you're hurting now. Well, because um, I married Glennon Doyle. <laughs> And she's just a freaking, you know, the most successful author ever. It's just uh, incredible. I won the lottery in that way, for sure. I'm sure you feel that way in many, many other ways. Of um, course. And I wanted to mention, again, like I mentioned on the podcast, Stephanie and I were guests on We Can Do Hard Things. Just how impressed I am and inspired by both of you and the work that you do, aside from fighting for equal pay and just helping those in need, like really putting your time and effort into so many causes. Yeah, we're really lucky. I'm really lucky because, you know, Glennon started togetherizing the nonprofit Mm -hmm. years and years ago. And we're grateful to so many folks around the world that donate and you being one of them. I mean, you donated all the proceeds for one of your shows, I think in New York City. Mm -hmm. I can't remember which show you donated from, but huge gratitude to you and to Stephanie for even thinking of wanting to be that. We just think the world of what you both do. For anybody that's not familiar, check out Together Rising and all the work that you guys are doing. And then, Abby, you are the youngest of seven children. What was that like growing up? Well, it's weird. Growing up, I didn't know any better, but I thought I had like an idyllic childhood there was almost always some sort of chaos going on. Um, I had a lot of people to look up to and to like figure out what I wanted to do through their successes and failures. And my sister, the eldest in our family, my sister, Beth, she went to Harvard and played basketball there. Wow. I was never a great student. I thought, well, I'm never going to be able to get to Harvard. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to like focus my attention on sport. And I was really athletic. I played a lot of different sports growing up and, Found myself playing soccer, got called in as a young kid to the youth national teams. And I guess, as they say, the rest turned into history. But, you know, growing up, it it felt great. But I don't know if you'd say the black sheep of the family or some people call it the X factor. I was just very different than the rest of my brothers and sisters. Like they all really listened to my parents and did (laughs) every single thing that they said to a T. And I just... I just was not that way because I I felt deeply in my bones that I was different than them. Mm-hmm. I couldn't really put words to it when I was 10, even 15. But once I started to get into like the elder parts of my teenage years, I started to realize, you know, my sexuality was definitely not what I was supposed to be doing by the Catholic upbringing that I had. That's the other thing we have in common. 
Catholic upbringing. Yes. I actually yeah. went to an all-girls Catholic high school. And I'm so pissed because I could have had so much more fun if I just acknowledged my sexuality <laughs> a little earlier. But there I was, you know, having a mom who very much still believes in the tradition of Catholicism and trying to appeal to her and and please her and also having this like internal conflict going on inside of myself like this just all doesn't make sense and then i go to college and everything kind of changes and i start really embodying who i really was and and so now in my you know 20s 30s now in my 40s i look back and i'm like i had so much trauma mm-hmm. from trying to like suppress my sexuality and suppress like my bigness. I'm like, I have this big personality that I kind of keep learning about, which is really cool. And, you know, I I wonder, I'm getting to the stage where I'm stopping blaming so much and I'm starting to be like, well, that's just the way it was. And I'm okay now. And I've done really well for myself. I've been successful. I have a family. And it's been really interesting because I think that that was one of the things, you know, our 16, he's now 19, but Chase, our our oldest, he came out to us at 16. And I remember I was like riddled with fear around it. Mm. And it was such a healing thing for me because I understand now what it is to be a parent mm-hmm. and to know what the world is and to fear our child having a hard experience, right? Like, and so now I kind of, think about my coming out experience in not so much of a negative way. Oh, my mom didn't accept me. I think that my mom wasn't necessarily afraid. She was more afraid for me than of me. And I think that I had that confused for a lot of my life until our son came out. And I'm scared for him in many ways. Like the world, yes, it is so much better than it was when we were growing up, but it's still weird. You know, worse in other ways. Yes, uh, exactly. So, you know, having kids has been great for me to understand a little bit more about my mom and it's healed some of that. And also marrying Glennon, who knows more about religion than anybody ever probably can, Mm -hmm. at least the people that I know. She gets into Jesus conversations with my mom and I'm just like, oh, this is good. (laughs) This is good. And so my mom (laughs) has respect for Glennon because she really has. She knows her stuff. Yeah, she's really dedicated herself to figuring out what it is that she believes about Jesus and God, and mm-hmm. and it might not fall in the lines of Catholicism by any means, but there's respect there, I guess. That's nice. Yeah. yeah. I was raised Catholic, but yeah. it was a chill Catholic house. Nobody was throwing around the name Jesus. <laughs> it was just like church when we were little and the holidays, you know, but it was really chill. Oh, envious. But I'm not a religious person at all. Yeah, me neither. Not anymore. Well, there's another thing in common. Look. I'm spiritual. Like, I think that there are unanswerable questions. Mm-hmm. I'm like what I would call spiritually fluid. Yeah, yeah. I am a godparent. Mm. And my friend who made me the godparent of her son, when she brought this up to me, I said, wait. <laughs> I feel like this is not a good decision on your part. I'm not a religious person and you know this. And she said, well, yeah, you know how you are? Well, just uh, I want you to be that influence on my child. I feel like if my child has a question about life, you are the person I trust for him to go to. And I was like, 
Okay, great. So um, <laughs> when we do talk about how I am the godparent, everybody jokes that I'm actually his spiritual advisor. That's right. Yeah. I have three godkids. And my sister Beth was baptizing my first godchild, Annie. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember having to have a conversation with her. I said, Beth, I just want you to know, like, <laughs> I think that this is more of like a placeholder, like a title, like a symbol <laughs> Yeah. But I had to stand up there in the Catholic Church and the priest asked me, you know, will you raise this child with all of the Catholic? And I couldn't say anything. And I just nodded. I was like, Mm -hmm. that's it. That's all you're getting, you priest. (laughs) (laughs) See, I can only assume I went through the same ceremony, but I don't remember at all. I just remember holding a baby by some water. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. All I'm saying is, I hope you have a nice Christmas. Yeah. Same with you. Yes. For sure. Now, Abby, you said nobody listens to you in your house, but I feel like you have a lot of advice to give. I'm eager to give advice because I became an insta-mom, insta-parent when I Mm -hmm. walked into this family At the time, I had just retired from soccer, and you might relate to this, that a lot of people want to listen to the things that we say for whatever weird reason. It doesn't make any logical sense. I'm just like, I played soccer. How could (laughs) anything that I say make any sense, especially since I hit my head against a soccer ball for so many years? So I was under the impression that people like to listen to me talk. Mm -hmm. And this is all like, just conditioning. And I would like interrupt our children at dinner. And Glennon had to have a talk with me. She's like, babe. So when the kids are talking, when our small children are talking, that is a way that we can connect with them and learn about them. So interrupting them might not be the best form of parenting at the moment. So I've learned to kind of quell the things that that might come up in my mind. So this is exciting. I might be able to... So the kids didn't really care that I'll be right back was sitting there at the table. They did not give It's like my kids that fast forward through any TV show or special with my face on it. And they call me Tig Notaro (laughs) when they see me. They're like, oh, there's Tig Notaro. And then, you know, swipe, swipe, swipe. Yeah, that's how it rolls. And what about specifically, would you have advice for people that have fallen in love with someone who's already a parent? Yeah, this is actually something that I know a lot about and have thought a lot about because Mm -hmm. when I first met Glennon, both of us actually were in other relationships. Glennon Uh was married to Craig and I was married to my ex-wife and I was on the verge of getting a divorce. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't see each other for probably like five or six months so that we could extricate ourselves from those marriages to be able to be together. And during that time, I spent a lot of time actually emailing back and forth with Craig to develop a relationship that would be really positive for the kids. Mm -hmm. I knew that I always wanted to have kids. I didn't know it would happen in this way, which is actually awesome now thinking in hindsight, because then I I didn't have to get pregnant. I didn't have to like have the babies and I didn't have to deal with poopy diapers. Like they were old enough. I think that is like the perfect time for me. I don't know if I would have been a good small child parent. And I think one of the things that that I was able to establish with Craig, our kid's dad, was a loving relationship before I even met the kids. Mm-hmm. So when Glennon and Craig told the kids about me, Craig was able to tell them that he cared about me, that he loved me. And that in some ways gave them permission to do the same. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, treating each kid like they're their own person. Yeah. 
So now our kids are very smart. Mm -hmm. They know what they can get out of each parent. And that's what they go to each parent with, right? So I'm like the person who not controls, but manages and knows about the money and the tech. So when they need something ordered, when they need Mm -hmm. something new, when they want something, (laughs) they come to me. Glennon is like an intellectual, spiritual type. And so when they need something like, how do I fill my car up with gas? Some like very basic thing that Glennon might not know how to explain that. I'm like your person. I'm the person that can teach them about like the normal stuff of life. And Glennon, she's the teacher of all of the things, whether it's school or their hearts or their emotions. Yeah, that's nice. It's been fun though. And it's the hardest and most rewarding thing I've ever done. It's the most exhausting. It's like never over. It never ends parenting. No, no. Yeah. No. And you're further along. And I mean, we have six-year-olds. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) But they're awesome and have their little moments. But I would say, like every other parent, they're exceptional. Yeah. We're very, very lucky. Yeah. Well, are you ready to get into the listener questions? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. The first question is actually about sports. Hmm. Yeah, something you might know a little bit about. I do. Katie writes, Hi, Tig. I have a 10-year-old daughter who loves gymnastics, and it's her greatest dream to make the gymnastics team at our gym. The thing is, the girls on the team are the worst. Gossipy, perfectionist, competitive, classic tween brats. Despite the fact that my daughter will likely be six feet tall soon, like me, she has busted her butt and may actually make the team soon. The thing is, she's a better soccer and tennis player, and the kids in these sports seem way nicer and more well-rounded. Can I tell her to dump gymnastics? Or is this one of those many things I need to not micromanage? Mm, This is a good one. Mm -hmm. Parenting is really hard because every age group requires a different form of parenting. When the kids are really young, you're basically making all of their decisions for them, right? Like what they eat and what they're wearing. And as they get older and start to develop more emotionally and They're capable of deciding what they put in their mouths and what they put on their bodies. Sports is one of those things that you just have to, you have to ask this child what they love most, what their favorite sport is. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's our inclination as parents to want to help them and guide them through some of these decisions. But if, if she loves gymnastics and really wants to compete in gymnastics, I would say just sit down with your kiddo and talk to them and ask them like what they love about gymnastics. And if that is something that could also grow in these other sports, because you have to weigh what they're getting socially speaking, like yes, individual sports are a little bit more intense with the perfectionism and especially gymnastics. It's a tough sport because there's a lot of body image stuff that's going on. Mm -hmm. If this child is going to be six foot, gymnastics might be a tough one. (laughs) You know, there's a reason why you see all of the gymnasts being very small. And it's because they spend six hours a day training and jumping. And what happens is their spines compress over time as they get older. So it literally squeezes the vertebrae in their spines to make them shorter, which makes them more capable of pulling up their body weight. It makes them better gymnasts. In my opinion, gymnastics is one of the best things to put your small children in 
at a young age because it teaches them about their body. It teaches them about movement and mechanics. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, I did gymnastics and then I went into soccer and basketball when I was five and six years old. And you just got to see what the social experiment is. Like mm-hmm. what practice do you enjoy going to more? Mm-hmm. Is the goal of being on this gymnastics team the thing? And you just have to have the conversation with your kid. They're going to tell you. That's all really great. And it kind of reminds me of what they teach at my kid's school is no thank you bites. Have you heard of those? No. Like to try food and you say, just have a no thank you bite. Oh, cool. You taste it and and it's either delicious or not. And, uh, you know, you can add it up. You understand what a no thank you bite is. I'm going to start doing that with myself. Yeah, it feels like there could be a no thank you bite with other sports. Mm. Just go for it with gymnastics, but do a no thank you bite with the others and just see if there's something waiting for you there that you didn't realize that you would love so much. That's right. That's right. And if your child is drawn to this, I think you have to let them ride it out until they are not getting whatever it is that is feeding them. Yeah, I watch it in stand-up all the time. Comedians, people that are pursuing it and they're in the open mic scene and they're they're never really taking off, but there's something in there where they want to prove that they can make it work or mm. they have a social scene that they're connected to. And mm. um, I don't know. I I think that it's important to remember that at 10 years old, you're just trying to give your kids as much opportunity to figure out what they like to do. Joy, mm-hmm. passion, yeah. learning about grit. I mean, maybe going for this gymnastics team is going to be teaching them about resilience and maybe they don't make it. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, what I'm about to say might be heartbreaking for a lot of people to hear, but there is a high percentage chance that your child won't be able to do this thing on a professional level. Yeah. So what is the point of sports then? Why are we putting our kids in sports at young ages? It's really important to learn about your body. It's really important to learn about social dynamics. So though it might be a hard social situation that your kid is in with gymnastics, it actually might be the very thing that could help teach your kid about the person they want to be, mm-hmm. about dealing with conflict, about speaking up when somebody is doing them wrong or saying something Mm -hmm. wrong or doing somebody else wrong. Like it's our dream as parents to make sure that our kids have this cushy life and no problems, but it's really the problems of their lives that help them become the people and adults we dream they become one day. For sure. So I say write it out on the gymnastics and then offer a no thank you bite and everything else that Abby said. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's advice straight from Abby Wambach, okay? (laughs) I'll be right back. Yeah. And we will be right back because we have to go to a short break. So Perfect timing. We'll be right back. You're an advocate, as we mentioned, for equal pay, for equal work, which is at the heart of the next listener question. Cool. 
Joe writes, I have a coworker who is getting hired on to my team from a contractor position to a full-time employee. Our jobs are exactly the same with slightly different focuses. She disclosed to me that she was offered 13000 more in an annual salary than I currently make. I've been an employee for over a year and am just as qualified as her, so I'm upset to be making so much less. Should I bring this issue up to my boss? I don't want to throw my new coworker under the bus. Mm. That's tricky. Mm. Probably to this day, I've never really worked in, you know, this kind of situation. Do we know the listener's name? Joe. Right. Did that make everything clear? It's a little bit more clear. (laughs) Yeah. So here's the thing. This woman who's coming in. Yeah. I think it's really important. I think they're both women. Got it. I'm saying this because it's J-O. Got it. So, yeah. But it yeah. also could be a non-binary person. That's right. There's just a being named Joe that is writing to us. If we're talking about two women, I think it's really important to talk about this concept and idea that so many of us, especially when we have jobs and we have salaries and the way we start is going to affect so much of the increase over the whole of that job, over the whole Mm -hmm. of our working careers. Women actually retire with 30% less than men for various of reasons. The maternity tax, the fact that when women get into the job, they're making far less than men do. So the increase of that salary over time is not nearly as much as man's. And so what I would say is you don't have to throw somebody under the bus to go advocate for yourself. You Mm -hmm. can go and talk about what you bring to the company. You can mention that new hires are making X amount more than you, and there should be, and there could be a place where there's an increase. How can we have a conversation around that? I think that it is absolutely within your right. And by the way, it's not just about you, right? And I think that this is can give so many women out there a little bit of courage when you go into these conversations because the only thing women are allowed is just gratitude. I'm just so grateful mm-hmm. that you've hired me. But like you are also allowed to be ambitious. And so when you go in, you're not only fighting for yourself, but you are also fighting for the woman who's going to be walking in that door behind you Mm -hmm. because you're establishing a standard for that organization, for that compensation, right? And so having those hard conversations is essential to getting the pay that you deserve, that you are earning, right? And it's not easy. I don't pretend that it's easy. No, it's not easy. And just looking at you talking about it reminds me to add in just the importance of delivery, And if you truly believe this, then you go in with the confidence. Then I know that's hard, but to try and get in touch with the confidence that you need and the directness during that conversation. And would you say if the boss was like, okay, I'm not going to give you 13,000, I'll give you 7,000, 6,000. Is that a success or does the person need to have 13,000? Well, I mean, I think they mentioned that they work in different specialties of mm-hmm. this job yeah. and the way that that gets delineated via compensation, they're going to make it very difficult, right? To get that mm-hmm. full increase yeah. and bump. But look, seven is better than nothing. Yeah. And maybe you can set some internalized or, and negotiate some goals that if you hit certain goals by the end of the year, 
then you'll get bumped up to that bonus at the end of the year. Love it, Abby. I can't believe nobody in your house will listen to you. I know. This is insane. I know. Joe, you and your coworkers should be riding the fair pay bus together, not getting thrown under it. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break to answer a question that came in our therapy etiquette inbox. This segment is where we answer those awkward questions we all have as people getting the professional help we need and deserve and is sponsored by BetterHelp. Today's question was sent in by Sarah. Sarah writes, Hey Tig, I'm someone who is very motivated by measurable progress. In school, I lived for grades, not always because they made me feel better about myself, but because they made me feel like I knew where I was and what I needed to do to get to the next level slash grade. The same is true for exercising and being able to see times or weights or reps. It's harder to measure progress in therapy. Can I ask my therapist for progress reports? Sarah, that is a question that never occurred to me, but it occurred to you, and that means it's important. So go ahead, ask your therapist for a progress report. I actually am thinking maybe I'll uh, ask mine and hold my breath. But anyway, the best way to start maybe with a conversation about just what a progress report would look like and how you could use it to track your goals moving forward. I'll also add that this might be a good time to have maybe a larger conversation. For example, what exactly does progress look like for you when it comes to therapy? Mental health isn't a job, so you aren't an employee. Your therapist isn't a boss, and you aren't going to get fired for not reaching some sort of productivity goal. So I don't know. The main point I want to make is that any question you have about your therapy experience is a valid element to bring into your sessions. And I have a feeling that wherever you and your therapist end up with your progress reports, you're going to have a fruitful conversation about it that's going to be very helpful. And that's progress. A-plus question, Sarah. I hope that's been helpful or at least somewhat reassuring. We want to hear from you. Send us your therapy etiquette-related questions at don'tasktig.org. Thanks to our sponsor, BetterHelp. Now let's get back to our conversation with Abby Wambach. Abby, this last listener question was sent in by voicemail. Hey, Tig. This is a question for you and Abby. This is Marie. It's not my real name, and I'm over 13. I just want to know when you're in love and you have to wait, how do you wait? Like day to day, minute by minute, Abby, how did you wait? Thanks. Bye. Okay. I just have a couple of questions. Um, does our show say that you have to um, <laughs> be 13? Be 13 to call in. <laughs> because I thought that was such an interesting. Also, I'm over 13. So good. But I am under 70. <laughs> and as far as when you have to wait, I'm not sure I'm understanding. Wait to be with the person or 
Yeah. So I think what she's referring to is Glennon and I got together, we met and we only had met for 10 minutes uh-huh. and then we both went back to our respective lives. Yeah. But both of us were in relationships. And so we had to, yeah. like I said earlier on the podcast, get out of those relationships before we could be together. And because she had three children and also up until this point in my life, mm-hmm. I didn't have much impulse control. I was newly sober. I was like, I want this and I'm going to get that now yeah, as fast right. as possible. So this was a an exercise for me that I think was maybe one of the most important things I've ever learned over the next six months until I ended up moving to Naples. All I had to figure out was the waiting was going to be better for everybody involved for my future life. I mm-hmm. could have flown to her and we could have had a rendezvous, but then that would have compromised the promise and vow she had made to Craig. Right. And that could have compromised respect and trust in our family life down the road. And so this was like the first time I made like a real mature decision for myself in a relationship that I was mm-hmm. like, I'm going to suffer in the short term to enable a long-term life mm-hmm. and a truly foundationally built life to be able to grow. It was the hardest thing I've ever done up until that point in my life. Yeah. You know, looking back at the whole of my existence here on planet Earth and the times that I've been in relationships, this has been by far the most stable and grounded one because it was built in truth Mm -hmm. and in honor. And it was done in the way that allowed my integrity to stay intact. I wasn't ever getting outside of my character because we decided we wanted to be together. We had to go about divorcing and getting out of those previous relationships in the right way in order to step into something even better. Mm-hmm. Look, social media makes us like, I want this now and I need it now. And everything good in my life is because I waited and I did it in a way that aligned and kept my integrity intact. I can relate this relationship with Stephanie. Yeah. I feel like I need to send cards to all my exes and yes. just say my apologies. Yes. I, uh, <laughs> I wasn't quite there yet. And uh, <laughs> because I'm sure, especially since she and I are both public figures, I would say I'm friendly with all of my exes. But still, I'm sure there are people that I have dated that witness what my life is now and are like, I I didn't get that. That's right. You know, that is right. Anyway, it's really interesting. I kind of went through the same with Stephanie of because she hadn't dated a woman and she was telling me that she was straight. I knew that I liked her and I just said, well, I should probably hang back and wait until I can see you as a friend, Mm -hmm. you know? And Mm -hmm. so we went our separate ways and I just was trying to reprogram my head. And then she reached out to me. Yeah. And I remember saying to my friend at the time, I was like, why do you think she said she wants to come over and talk to me? And he was like, she's in love with you. And I was Mm -hmm. like, no, 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 no. We already had this conversation. She said she's straight. So what, what, why is she? He was like, oh my God, she's in love with you. And mm. I couldn't even accept it. Yeah. But yeah, I did the waiting and uh, 
it was different, obviously, from your situation. But, you know, just to tie it back to how do you wait? And, uh, well, you just do. And it is hard, but it is a nice feeling when you know that, you know, nobody can come back and say, hey, I found this, or you did this wrong, or you were sneaking, or you lied, or, you know, any of that stuff. You just, you're like, this is the truth. This is what happened. This is how I feel. This is how I want to proceed. This is how we will proceed. But yeah. I give Glennon a lot of credit for it because she had the three kids that she was thinking about. Yeah. And she also had 15 years of sobriety under her belt that she was like, look, nothing is going to go away. Mm -hmm. And if it's meant to be right, it will be in six months. It'll be in six years. It'll be hopefully in 60 years, but we will ruin it if we rush it. Marie, hang in there. Abby, this final part of the show is a segment I call Come Back to Me Later. Everyone wishes they had the perfect response at the ready for certain social interactions. Come Back to Me Later is a segment where we make that wish come true. Sarah writes, Dear Tig and friend, that's you, Abby. Got it. I need your help. I am constantly misgendered, which as an almost six foot tall lesbian is something I have learned to live with. I don't love it, but life goes on. Well, now my wife and I are hoping to adopt, and I'm worried about how to handle these situations when we have a kid in tow. Mm. I don't ever want them to feel ashamed, and I worry that my stumbling through the usual awkward responses of nope, nope, not sir, and no, really, it's okay, will do more harm than good in these situations. Please help. Hmm. Well, <laughs> I just have to say, I mean, this... People think I'm exaggerating when I say it happens on a near daily basis for me. Same. A similar thing happened in my own house last year at bedtime when I was about to read a story to my children. One of my sons asked me, are you a boy or a girl? (laughs) (laughs) And Stephanie interjected and she said, well, what do you think? And he said, "Um, I think you're a boy. And I said, well, no, I'm not a boy. And he said, yeah, but you look like one. And I said, yeah, "Yeah, that is true. But yeah, it's, it's such a, it's especially an interesting time because of the conversation around gender and where everybody falls. And it's nice when people ask, you know, what your pronouns are, but like Stephanie was saying, nobody asks her mm-hmm. what her pronoun is. Mm-hmm. Everybody only asks if you look like me or you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. that's always an interesting part, too, because if there is this discussion about gender and it's fluid, and then everybody really should be asked, that's you know? Right. That's right. I mean, I know that's not exactly answering this question, but it's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Well, I get misgendered, I would say, 90% of the time. Mm. And it's funny because my kids and wife, they get more upset about it than me because Mm -hmm. they're trying to protect my heart and my feelings. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. Like, Glenn and I, we have these long conversations about gender 
Mm-hmm. It is a socially constructed construct. Like it is something that was essentially made up. And the the truth is, is both sexuality and gender and orientation and identity. All of that stuff is stuff that humans have made up to classify ourselves or to make ourselves feel safe in certain ways. But there's some of us, and in my opinion, those of us who might not fall on the end of those spectrums and somewhere in the middle, a non-binary person or however you want to identify, we are the people that see the truth and we have felt the truth. Like, I actually don't think that gender lives in me. I think mm-hmm. that I have female parts. I think when I look at the mirror, I'm not going, ooh, you are a woman, Abby. I mm-hmm. literally look at myself and the only thing I see is Abby. Mm-hmm. I'm not seeing a gender. I actually think that everything that I do is in some ways in response to the world that I've been born into. Mm-hmm. I was supposed to be a girl. I didn't mm-hmm. feel like that. Mm-hmm. And I didn't also didn't feel like a boy because I'm emotional and sensitive. And so I'm kind of confused myself about my own place in the world, but I can only be and act how I am. Mm-hmm. And I cannot bring on or take on the outside world's judgment of that because mm-hmm. that will just make me miserable. Because what am I going to do? Like put dresses on because I'm just, I feel too Please. old. Yeah, I feel too old to be changing my pronouns. And I think that there are a lot of people that are. And I I really think that that's awesome. I'm just like tired. There is nothing to be figured out. Because if I change my pronouns, in five or ten years, the gender pronoun game will be different. All of the acronyms that we're using and all that that is going on, mm-hmm. none of it is real. It's all stuff that we've made up. Well, and the fact is, you're born with a sex. That's right. You're born with whatever genitalia you're born with. And what society made up is this is a boy or this is a girl. But it's just such a big conversation. I've personally, the frustrating part for me is like, uh, I don't know if you feel this vibe when you go into public bathroom, get looks of like, who are you? What yeah. are you? What yeah. do you do? Are is this your right bathroom? I actually have a bathroom voice. Yeah. I raise my voice to a higher octave. So anybody that looks at me and uh-huh. I know that the looks are always coming, I'll go, Hi. Yeah. <laughs> so I just like curb it. <laughs> oh my. I hope desperately Hi. that you and I run in- into each other in a public bathroom sometime. Hi. Yeah, I would say it's even though it's a women's bathroom, it can be a scary vibe because people are like looking at you. What are you doing in here? But what I've done for myself is I've just tried to come up with funny ways to deal with it. And I think as far as worrying about how your kids see you in these situations, I think that having a conversation with your kids and also finding some sort of comfort and confidence in how you feel and not taking on the weight of the world. I know it's easier said than done, but it goes always back to it's in the delivery and and uh, some days (laughs) you're just not in the mood to be uh, Mr. Notaro. Or other days, you know, if when people say, um, excuse me, sir, my favorite thing to do is to misgender them. (laughs) And I just say, that's okay, ma'am. 
to a huge, burly, bearded man. Oh, it's so good. But yeah, I I feel the same. I identify as kind of similarly as just Tig or a person, um, but I also feel more comfortable with she, her. But I don't know if this has been helpful, but take it from a couple of <laughs> misgendered, uh, high-pitched, hello, yeah. people on this planet, Sarah. That's yeah. That's what we say. And hopefully something in there was helpful. And Abby, we're at the end here. Oh my gosh, what a joy. It was so fun to (laughs) have you and your advice was so helpful and useful. And I really felt like I just wanted to sit back and hear what you had to say because I I do think you have so many great points and you're a smart, likable human being. That's really sweet. Is there anything you would like to promote to the world? No, I just think that, you know, you being in the world and you just keep doing you. um, I'm happy to be a part of this. Thanks for having me. is hosted by me, Tig Notaro. It's produced by Thomas Willette and Shayna Deloria. Our executive producer and editor is Beth Perlman. Engineering and sound mixing by Alex Simpson. Digital production by James Napoli. Talent booking by Marianne Ways. Our theme music is Friend in Tig by Edie Brickell and Kyle Crusham. And Listen to Your Heart by Edie Brickell. Special thanks to Hunter Seidman. APM Studios executives in charge are Chandra Kavadi, Alex Schaffert, and Joanne Griffith. Concept developed by Tracy Mumford. Our executive consultant is Dean Capello and Gobsmack Studios. You can always ask for advice at don'tasktig.org. Just write in with your problem or send us a voice memo. Remember to follow us on social media at Don't Ask Tig. Don't Ask Tig is a production of American Public Media. And as always, thanks, Dana, and I'll tell Becky.
Hi, I'm stand-up comedian and sex symbol Tig Notaro. And I'm actor and writer Cheryl Hines. Before Cheryl and I got into the big business of podcasting together, (laughs) we were just simply friends. And we're still friends. But now we talk about a different documentary every week on our podcast, Tig and Cheryl, True Story. So whether you love documentaries or just want to hear us slowly lose our minds, check out Tig and Cheryl, True Story, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, cool. (laughs) 